What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 3, Chapter 13 of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book 3, A Long Lane. Chapter 13. Give a Dog a Bad Name and Hang Him. Fascination Fledgeby, left alone in the counting-house, strolled about with his hat on one side, whistling and investigating the drawers, and prying here and there for any small evidences of his being cheated, but could find none. "'Not his merit that he don't cheat me,' was Mr. Fledgeby's commentary, delivered with a wink. "'But my precaution.' He then, with a lazy grandeur, asserted his rights as Lord of Pubsey and Co., by poking his cane at the stools and boxes, and spitting in the fireplace, and so loitered royally to the window, and looked out into the narrow street, with his small eyes just peering over the top of Pubsey and Co.'s blind. As a blind in more senses than one, it reminded him that he was alone in the counting-house, with the front door open. He was moving away to shut it, lest he should be injudiciously identified with the establishment, when he was stopped by someone coming to the door. This someone was the doll's dressmaker, with a little basket on her arm, and her crutch-stick in her hand. Her keen eyes had espied Mr. Fledgeby before Mr. Fledgeby had espied her, and he was paralysed in his purpose of shutting her out, not so much by her approaching the door, as by her favouring him with a shower of nods the instant he saw her. This advantage she improved by hobbling up the steps with such dispatch that before Mr. Fledgeby could take measures for her, finding nobody at home, she was face to face with him in the counting-house. "'I hope I see you well, sir,' said Miss Wren. "'Mr. Ryer in?' Fledgeby had dropped into a chair in the attitude of one waiting wearily. "'I suppose he will be back soon,' he replied. "'He has cut out, and left me expecting him back in an odd way.' "'Haven't I seen you before?' "'Once before, if you had your eyesight,' replied Miss Wren, the conditional clause in an undertone. "'When you were carrying on some games up at the top of the house, I remember. How's your friend?' "'I have more friends than one, sir, I hope.' 
replied Miss Wren. "'Which friend?' "'Never mind,' said Mr. Fledgeby, shutting up one eye. "'Any of your friends, all your friends, are they pretty tolerable?' Somewhat confounded, Miss Wren parried the pleasantry, and sat down in a corner behind the door, with her basket in her lap. By and by, she said, breaking a long and patient silence, "'I beg your pardon, sir, but I am used to find Mr. Ryer at this time, and so I generally come at this time. I only want to buy my poor little two shillings worth of waste. Perhaps you'll kindly let me have it, and I'll trot off to my work.' "'I let you have it?' said Fledgeby, turning his head towards her, for he had been sitting blinking at the light, and feeling his cheek. "'Why, you don't really suppose that I have anything to do with the place or the business, do you?' "'Suppose?' exclaimed Miss Wren. "'He said that day you were the master.' "'The old cock in black said,' Raya said. "'Why, he'd say anything.' "'Well, but you said so, too,' returned Miss Wren. "'Or at least you took on like the master, and didn't contradict him.' "'One of his dodges.' said Mr. Fledgeby, with a cool and contemptuous shrug. "'He's made of dodgers. He said to me, "'Come up to the top of the house, sir, and I'll show you a handsome girl, but I shall call you the master.' So I went up to the top of the house, and he showed me the handsome girl, very well worth looking at she was, and I was called the master. I don't know why, I dare say he don't. He loves a dodge for its own sake, being—' added Mr. Fledgeby, after casting about for an expressive phrase, the dodgerest of all the dodgers. "'Oh, my head!' cried the doll's dressmaker, holding it with both her hands as if it were cracking. "'You can't mean what you say.' "'I can, my little woman,' retorted Fledgeby, "'and I do, I assure you.' This repudiation was not only an act of deliberate policy on Fledgeby's part, in case of his being surprised by any other caller, but was also a retort upon Miss Wren for her over-sharpness, and a pleasant instance of his humour as regarded the old Jew. He has got a bad name as an old Jew, and he has paid for the use of it, and I'll have my money's worth out of him. This was Fledgeby's habitual reflection in the way of business, and it was sharpened just now by the old man's presuming to have a secret from him, though of the secret itself, as annoying somebody else whom he disliked, he by no means disapproved. Miss Wren, with the fallen countenance, sat behind the door looking thoughtfully at the ground, and the long and patient silence had again set in for some time, when the expression of Mr. Fledgeby's face betokened that through the upper portion of the door, which was of glass, he saw someone faltering on the brink of the counting-house. Presently there was a rustle and a tap, and then some more rustling and another tap. Fledgeby taking no notice, the door was at length softly opened, and the dried face of a mild little elderly gentleman looked in. "'Mr. Ryer,' said this visitor, very politely. "'I am waiting for him, sir,' returned Mr. Fledgeby. "'He went out and left me here. I expect him back every minute. Perhaps you had better take a chair.' The gentleman took a chair, and put his hand to his forehead, as if he were in a melancholy frame of mind. Mr. Fledgeby eyed him aside, and seemed to relish his attitude. "'A fine day, sir,' remarked Fledgeby. The little dry gentleman was so occupied with his own depressed reflections, that he did not notice the remark, until the sound of Mr. Fledgeby's voice had died out of the counting-house. Then he started, and said, "'I beg your pardon, sir. I fear you spoke to me.' 
"'I said,' remarked Fledgeby, a little louder than before, "'it was a fine day.' "'I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon, yes.' Again the little dry gentleman put his hand to his forehead, and again Mr. Fledgeby seemed to enjoy his doing it. When the gentleman changed his attitude with a sigh, Fledgeby spake with a grin. "'Mr. Twemlow, I think?' The dried gentleman seemed much surprised. "'Had the pleasure of dining with you at Lammel's,' said Fledgeby. "'Even have the honour of being a connection of yours. An unexpected sort of place this to meet in. But one never knows, when one gets into the city, what people one may knock up against. I hope you have your health, and are enjoying yourself.' There might have been a touch of impertinence in the last words. On the other hand, it might have been but the native grace of Mr. Fledgeby's manner. Mr. Fledgeby sat on a stool with a foot on the rail of another stool, and his hat on. Mr. Twemlow had uncovered, on looking in at the door, and remained so. Now the conscientious Twemlow, knowing what he had done to thwart the gracious Fledgeby, was particularly disconcerted by this encounter. He was as ill at ease as a gentleman well could be. He felt himself bound to conduct himself stiffly towards Fledgeby, and he made him a distant bow. Fledgeby made his small eyes smaller, in taking special note of his manner. The doll's dressmaker sat in her corner behind the door, with her eyes on the ground, and her hands folded on her basket, holding her crutch-stick between them, and appearing to take no heed of anything. "'He's a long time,' muttered Mr. Fledgeby, looking at his watch. "'What time may you make it, Mr. Twemlow?' "'Mr. Twemlow made it ten minutes past twelve, sir.' "'As near as a toucher,' assented Fledgeby. "'I hope, Mr. Twemlow, your business here may be of a more agreeable character than mine.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Mr. Twemlow. Fledgeby again made his small eye smaller, as he glanced with great complacency at Twemlow, who was timorously tapping the table with a folded letter. "'What I know of Mr. Ryer,' said Fledgeby, with a very disparaging utterance of his name, "'leads me to believe that this is about the shop for disagreeable business. I have always found him the bitingest and tightest screw in London.' Mr. Twemlow acknowledged the remark with a little distant bow. It evidently made him nervous. "'So much so,' pursued Fledgeby, "'that if it wasn't to be true to a friend, nobody should catch me waiting here a single minute. But if you have friends in adversity, stand by them. That's what I say. And act up, too.' The equitable Twemlow felt that this sentiment, irrespective of the utterer, demanded his cordial assent. "'You are very right, sir,' he rejoined with spirit. "'You in indicate the generous and manly course.' "'Glad to have your approbation,' returned Fledgeby. "'It's a coincidence, Mr. Twemlow.' Here he descended from his perch, and sauntered towards him. "'That the friends I am standing by to-day are the friends at whose house I met you, the Lemmels. She's a very taking an agreeable woman. Conscience smote the gentle Twemlow pale. "'Yes,' he said, "'she is.' "'And when she appealed to me this morning, to come and try what I could do to pacify their creditor, this Mr. Ryer, 
that I certainly have gained some little influence with in transacting business for another friend, but nothing like so much as she supposes. And when a woman like that spoke to me as her dearest Mr. Fledgeby, and shed tears, why, what could I do, you know?' Trumlow gasped. "'Nothing but come!' "'Nothing but come. And so I came. But why?' said Fledgeby, putting his hands in his pockets, and counterfeiting deep meditation. Why, Riah should have started up, when I told him that the Lammles entreated him to hold over a bill of sale he has on all their effects, and why he should have cut out, saying he would be back directly, and why he should have left me here alone so long, I cannot understand. The chivalrous Tremlow, knight of the simple heart, was not in a condition to offer any suggestion. He was too penitent, too remorseful. For the first time in his life he had done an underhanded action, and he had done wrong. He had secretly interposed against this confiding young man, for no better reason than because the young man's ways were not his ways. But the confiding young man proceeded to heap coals of fire on his sensitive head. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Twemlow. You see, I am acquainted with the nature of the affairs that are transacted here.' Is there anything I can do for you here? You have always been brought up as a gentleman, never as a man of business. Another touch of possible impertinence in this place. And perhaps you are but a poor man of business. What else is to be expected? I am even a poorer man of business than I am a man, sir, returned Twemlow, and I could hardly express my deficiency in a stronger way. I really do not so much as clearly understand my position in the matter on which I am brought here, but there are reasons which make me very delicate of accepting your assistance. I am greatly, greatly disinclined to profit by it. I don't deserve it. Good, childish creature! condemned to a passage through the world by such narrow little dimly lighted ways, and picking up so few specks or spots on the road. "'Perhaps,' said Fledgeby, "'you may be a little proud of entering on the topic, having been brought up as a gentleman.' "'It's not that, sir,' returned Tremlow. "'It's not that. I hope I distinguish between true pride and false pride.' "'I have no pride at all myself,' said Fledgeby, "'and perhaps I don't cut things so fine as to know one from t'other. "'But I know this is a place where even a man of business needs his wits about him. "'And if mine can be of any use to you here, you're welcome to them.' "'You are very good,' said Twemlow, faltering. "'But I am most uh, unwilling.' "'I don't, you know.' proceeded Fledgeby, with an ill-favoured glance, "'entertain the vanity of supposing that my wits could be of any use to you in society, but they might be here. You cultivate society, and society cultivates you, but Mr. Ryer's not society. In society Mr. Ryer is kept dark, eh, Mr. Twemlow?' Twemlow, much disturbed, and with his hand fluttering about his forehead, replied, "'Quite uh, true.' The confiding young man besought him to state his case. 
the innocent Twemlow, expecting Fledgeby to be astounded by what he should unfold, and not for an instant conceiving the possibility of its happening every day, but treating of it as a terrible phenomenon, occurring in the course of ages, related how that he had had a deceased friend, a married civil officer with a family, who had wanted money for change of place on change of post, and how he, Twemlow, had given him his name, with the usual but in the eyes of Tremlow almost incredible result that he had been left to repay what he had never had. How in the course of years he had reduced the principal by trifling sums, having, said Tremlow, always to observe great economy, being in the enjoyment of a fixed income limited in extent, and that depending on the munificence of a certain nobleman, and had always pinched the full interest out of himself with punctual pinches how he had come, in course of time, to look upon this one only debt of his life as a regular quarterly drawback, and no worse, when his name had some way fallen into the possession of Mr. Ryer, who had sent him notice to redeem it by paying up in full, in one plump sum, or take tremendous consequences. This, with hazy remembrances of how he had been carried to some office to confess judgment, as he recollected the phrase, and now he had been carried to another office where his life was assured for somebody not wholly unconnected with the sherry trade whom he remembered by the remarkable circumstance that he had a stradivarius violin to dispose of and also a madonna formed the sum and substance of mr twemlow's narrative through which stalked the shadow of the awful snigsworth eyed afar off by money-lenders as security in the mist and menacing twemlow with his baronial truncheon to all Mr. Fledgeby listened, with a modest gravity becoming a confiding young man, who knew it all beforehand, and, when it was finished, seriously shook his head. "'I don't like Mr. Twemlow,' said Fledgeby. "'I don't like Ryer's calling in the principal. If he's determined to call it in, it must come.' "'But supposing, sir?' said Tremlow, downcast, that it can't come. Then, retorted Fledgeby, you must go, you know. Where? asked Tremlow faintly. To prison, returned Fledgeby, whereat Mr. Tremlow leaned his innocent head upon his hand, and moaned a little moan of distress and disgrace. However, said Fledgeby, appearing to pluck up his spirits. "'We'll hope it's not so bad as that comes to. If you'll allow me, I'll mention to Mr. Ryer, when he comes in, who you are, and I'll tell him you're my friend, and I'll say my say for you, instead of your saying it for yourself. I may be able to do it in a more business-like way. You won't consider it a liberty?' "'I thank you again and again, sir.' said Twemlow. I am strong, strongly disinclined to avail myself of your generosity, though my helplessness yields, for I cannot but feel that I, to put it in the mildest form of speech, that I have done nothing to deserve it. Where can he be? muttered Fledgeby, referring to his watch again. What can he have gone out for? "'Did you ever see him, Mr. Twemlow?' "'Never. He is a thorough Jew to look at, but he is a more thorough Jew to deal with. He is worst when he's quiet. If he's quiet, I shall take it as a very bad sign. Keep your eye upon him when he comes in, and if he's quiet, 
don't be hopeful. Here he is. He looks quiet. With these words, which had the effect of causing the harmless Twemlow painful agitation, Mr. Fledgery withdrew to his former post, and the old man entered the counting-house. "'Why, Mr. Ryer,' said Fledgeby, "'I thought you were lost.' The old man, glancing at the stranger, stood stock-still. He perceived that his master was leading up to the orders he was to take, and he waited to understand them. "'I really thought—' repeated Fledgeby slowly, that you were lost, Mr. Ryer. Why, now I look at you. But no, you can't have done it. No, you can't have done it. Hat in hand, the old man lifted his head, and looked distressfully at Fledgeby, as seeking to know what new moral burden he was to bear. "'You can't have rushed out to get the start of everybody else, and put in that bill of sale at Lammles,' said Fledgeby. "'Say you haven't, Mr. Ryer.' "'Sir, I have,' replied the old man in a low voice. "'Oh, my eye!' cried Fledgeby. "'Dear, dear, dear! Well, I knew you were a hard customer, Mr. Ryer, but I never thought you were as hard as that.' "'Sir,' said the old man, with great uneasiness, "'I do as I am directed. I am not the principal here. I am but the agent of a superior, and I have no choice, no power.' "'Don't say so,' retorted Fledgeby, secretly exultant as the old man stretched out his hands, with a shrinking action of defending himself against the sharp construction of the two observers. "'Don't play the tune of the trade, Mr. Ryer. You've a right to get in your debts, if you're determined to do it, but don't pretend what every one in your line regularly pretends. At least don't do it to me. Why should you, Mr. Ryer? You know I know all about you.' The old man clasped the skirt of his long coat with his disengaged hand, and directed a wistful look at Fledgeby. "'And don't,' said Fledgeby, "'don't, I entreat you as a favour, Mr. Ryer, be so devilish meek, for I know what'll follow if you are. Look here, Mr. Ryer, this gentleman is Mr. Twemlow.' The Jew turned to him and bowed. That poor lamb bowed in return, polite and terrified. "'I have made such a failure,' proceeded Fledgeby, "'in trying to do anything with you for my friend Lemmel, "'that I've hardly a hope of doing anything with you for my friend, "'and connection, indeed, Mr. Twemlow. "'But I do think that if you would do a favour for anybody, "'you would for me, and I won't fail for want of trying, "'and I pass my promise to Mr. Twemlow besides. "'Now, Mr. Ryer,' Here is Mr. Twemlow. Always good for his interest, always coming up to time, always paying his little way. Now why should you press Mr. Twemlow? You can't have any spite against Mr. Twemlow. Why not be easy with Mr. Twemlow? The old man looked into Fledgeby's little eyes for any sign of leave to be easy with Mr. Twemlow, but there was no sign in them. "'Mr. Twemlow is no connection of yours, Mr. Ryer,' said Fledgeby. "'You can't want to be even with him, for having through life gone in for a gentleman, and hung on to his family. 
If Mr. Twemlow has a contempt for business, what can it matter to you?' "'But, uh, pardon me,' interposed the gentle victim, "'I have not. I should consider it presumption.' "'There, Mr. Ryer,' said Fetchby, "'isn't that handsomely said? Come, make terms with me for Mr. Twemlow.' The old man looked again for any sign of permission to spare the poor little gentleman. No, Mr. Fledgeby meant him to be racked. "'I am very sorry, Mr. Twemlow,' said Ryer. "'I have my instructions. I am invested with no authority for diverging from them. The money must be paid.' "'In full and slap down, do you mean, Mr. Ryer?' asked Fledgeby, to make things quite explicit. "'In full, sir, and at once,' was Ryer's answer. Mr. Fledgeby shook his head deploringly at Twemlow, and mutely expressed in reference to the venerable figure standing before him with eyes upon the ground, "'What a monster of an Israelite this is!' "'Mr. Ryer,' said Fledgeby. The old man lifted up his eyes once more, to the little eyes in Mr. Fledgeby's head, with some reviving hope the sign might be coming yet— "'Mr. Ryer, it's of no use my holding back the fact. There's a certain great party in the background in Mr. Twemlow's case, and you know it.' "'I know it,' the old man admitted. "'Now, I'll put it as a plain point of business, Mr. Ryer. Are you fully determined, as a plain point of business, either to have that said great party security, or that said great party's money?" "'Fully determined,' answered Ryer, as he read his master's face, and learnt the book. "'Not at all caring for, and indeed, as it seems to me, rather enjoying,' said Fledgeby, with peculiar unction, "'the precious kick-up and row that will come off between Mr. Twemlow and the said great party.' This required no answer, and received none. Poor Mr. Twemlow, who had betrayed the keenest mental terrors since his noble kinsman loomed in the perspective, rose with a sigh to take his departure. "'I thank you very much, sir,' he said, offering Fledgeby his feverish hand. "'You have done me an unmerited service. Thank you. Thank you.' "'Don't mention it,' answered Fledgeby. "'It's a failure so far.' but I'll stay behind, and make another touch at Mr. Ryer." "'Do not deceive yourself, Mr. Twemlow,' said the Jew, then addressing him directly for the first time. "'There is no hope for you. You must expect no leniency here. You must pay in full, and you cannot pay too promptly, or you will be put to heavy charges. Trust nothing to me, sir. Money, money, money.' When he had said these words in an emphatic manner, he acknowledged Mr. Twemlow's still polite motion of his head, and that amiable little worthy took his departure in the lowest spirits. Fascination Fledgeby was in such a merry vein when the counting-house was cleared of him, that he had nothing for it but to go to the window, and lean his arms on the frame of the blind, and have his silent laugh out, with his back to his subordinate. When he turned round again with a composed countenance, his subordinate still stood in the same place, and the doll's dressmaker sat behind the door with a look of horror. "'Hello!'
cried Mr. Fledgeby. "'You're forgetting this young lady, Mr. Ryer, and she has been waiting long enough, too. Uh, sell her her waist, please, and give her good measure, if you can make up your mind to do the liberal thing for once.' He looked on for a time, as the Jew filled her little basket with such scraps as she was used to buy. But, his merry vein coming on again, he was obliged to turn round to the window once more, and lean his arms on the blind. "'There, my Cinderella, dear,' said the old man in a whisper, and with a worn-out look, "'the basket's full now, bless you, and get you gone.' "'Don't call me your Cinderella, dear,' returned Miss Wren. "'Oh, you cruel godmother!' She shook that emphatic little forefinger of hers in his face at parting, as earnestly and reproachfully as she had ever shaken it at her grim old child at home. "'You are not the godmother at all,' said she. "'You are the wolf in the forest, the wicked wolf. "'And if ever my dear Lizzie is sold and betrayed, "'I shall know who sold and betrayed her.'" End of Book Three, Chapter Thirteen Book Three, Chapter Fourteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three, A Long Lane. Chapter Fourteen. Mr. Wegg prepares a grindstone for Mr. Boffin's nose. Having assisted at a few more expositions of the lives of misers. Mr. Venus became almost indispensable to the evenings at the bower. The circumstance of having another listener to the wonders unfolded by Wegg, or, as it were, another calculator to cast up the guineas found in teapots, chimneys, racks, and mangers, and other such banks of deposit, seemed greatly to heighten Mr. Boffin's enjoyment. While Silas Wegg, for his part, though of a jealous temperament, which might, under ordinary circumstances, have resented the anatomist's getting into favour, was so very anxious to keep his eye on that gentleman, lest, being too much left to himself, he should be tempted to play any tricks with the precious document in his keeping, that he never lost an opportunity of commending him to Mr. Boffin's notice as a third party whose company was much to be desired. Another friendly demonstration towards him Mr. Wegg now regularly gratified. After each sitting was over, and the patron had departed, Mr. Wegg invariably saw Mr. Venus home. To be sure, he as invariably requested to be refreshed with the sight of the paper in which he was a joint proprietor. But he never failed to remark that it was the great pleasure he derived from Mr. Venus's improving society which had insensibly lured him round to Clerkenwell again, and that, finding himself once more attracted to the spot by the social powers of Mr. V., he would beg leave to go through that little incidental procedure as a matter of form. "'For well, I know, sir,' Mr. Wegg would add, "'that a man of your delicate mind would wish to be checked off whenever the opportunity arises, and it is not for me to balk your feelings.' A certain rustiness in Mr. Venus, which never became so lubricated by the oil of Mr. Wegg, but that he turned under the screw in a creaking and stiff manner, was very noticeable at about this period. While assisting at the literary evenings, 
he even went so far, on two or three occasions, as to correct Mr. Wegg when he grossly mispronounced a word, or made nonsense of a passage, insomuch that Mr. Wegg took to surveying his course in the day, and to making arrangements for getting round rocks at night, instead of running straight upon them. Of the slightest anatomical reference, he became particularly shy, and, if he saw a bone ahead, would go any distance out of his way, rather than mention it by name. The adverse destinies ordained that one evening Mr. Wegg's labouring bark became beset by polysyllables, and embarrassed among a perfect archipelago of hard words. It being necessary to take soundings every minute, and to feel the way with the greatest caution, Mr. Wegg's attention was fully employed. Advantage was taken of this dilemma by Mr. Venus, to pass a scrap of paper into Mr. Boffin's hand, and lay his finger on his own lip. When Mr. Boffin got home at night, he found that the paper contained Mr. Venus's card, and these words, "'Should be glad to be honoured with a call respecting business of your own, about dusk on an early evening.' The very next evening saw Mr. Boffin peeping in at the preserved frogs in Mr. Venus's shop-window, and saw Mr. Venus espying Mr. Boffin with the readiness of one on the alert, and beckoning that gentleman into his interior.' Responding, Mr. Boffin was invited to seat himself on the box of human miscellanies, before the fire, and did so, looking round the place with admiring eyes. The fire being low and fitful, and the dusk gloomy, the whole stock seemed to be winking and blinking with both eyes, as Mr. Venus did. The French gentleman, though he had no eyes, was not at all behindhand, but appeared, as the flame rose and fell, to open and shut his no eyes, with the regularity of the glass-eyed dogs and ducks and birds. The big-headed babies were equally obliging in lending their grotesque aid to the general effect. "'You see, Mr. Venus, I've lost no time,' said Mr. Boffin. "'Here I am.' "'Here you are, sir,' assented Mr. Venus. "'I don't like secrecy,' pursued Mr. Boffin. "'At least, not in a general way, I don't. But I dare say you'll show me good reason for being secret so far.' "'I think I shall, sir,' returned Venus. "'Good,' said Mr. Boffin. "'You don't expect Wegg, I take it for granted.' "'No, sir, I expect no one but the present company.' Mr. Boffin glanced about him, as accepting, under that inclusive denomination, the French gentleman, and the circle in which he didn't move, and repeated, "'The present company.' "'Sir,' said Mr. Venus, "'before entering upon business,' I shall have to ask you for your word and honour that we are in confidence. Let's wait a bit, and understand what the expression means," answered Mr. Boffin. "'In confidence, for how long? In confidence for ever in a day?' "'I take your hint, sir,' said Venus. "'You think you might consider the business, when you came to know it, to be of a nature incompatible with confidence on your part?' "'I might,' said Mr. Boffin, with a cautious look. "'True, sir. Well, sir,' observed Venus, after clutching at his dusty hair to brighten his ideas, "'let us put it another way. I open the business with you, relying upon your honour not to do anything in it, and not to mention me in it, without my knowledge.' "'That sounds fair,' said Mr. Boffin. "'I agree to that.' "'I have your word and honour, sir.' "'My good fellow,' retorted Mr. Boffin, "'you have my word.' And now you can have that, without my honour too. I don't know. I've sorted a lot of dust in my time, but I never knew the two things go into separate heaps. 
This remark seemed rather to abash Mr. Venus. He hesitated, and said, "'Very true, sir,' and again, "'Very true, sir,' before resuming the thread of his discourse. "'Mr. Boffin, if I confess to you that I fell into a proposal of which you were the subject, and of which you oughtn't to have been the subject, you will allow me to mention, and will please take into favourable consideration, that I was in a crushed state of mind at the time.' The golden dustman, with his hands folded on the top of his stout stick, with his chin resting upon them, and with something leering and whimsical in his eyes, gave a nod, and said, "'Quite so, Venus.' "'That proposal, sir, was a conspiring breach of your confidence, to such an extent that I ought at once to have made it known to you, but I didn't, Mr. Boffin, and I fell into it.' Without moving eye or finger, Mr. Boffin gave another nod, and placidly repeated, "'Quite so, Venus.' "'Not that I was ever hearty in it, sir,' the penitent anatomist went on, "'or that I ever viewed myself with anything but reproach for having turned out of the paths of science into the paths of—' He was going to say villainy, but, unwilling to press too hard upon himself, substituted with great emphasis, "'Weggery!' Placid and whimsical of look as ever, Mr. Boffin answered, "'Quite so, Venus.' "'And now, sir,' said Venus, "'having prepared your mind in the rough, I will articulate the details.' With which brief professional exordium he entered on the history of the friendly move, and truly recounted it. One might have thought that it would have extracted some show of surprise or anger or other emotion from Mr. Boffin, but it extracted nothing beyond his former comment. "'Quite so, Venus.' "'I have astonished you, sir, I believe.' said Mr. Venus, pausing dubiously. Mr. Boffin simply answered, as aforesaid, "'Quite so, Venus.' By this time the astonishment was all on the other side. It did not, however, so continue. For when Venus passed to Wegg's discovery, and from that to their having both seen Mr. Boffin dig up the Dutch bottle, that gentleman changed colour, changed his attitude, became extremely restless, and ended— when Venus ended, by being in a state of manifest anxiety, trepidation, and confusion. "'Now, sir,' said Venus, finishing off, "'you best know what was in that Dutch bottle, and why you dug it up and took it away. I don't pretend to know anything more about it than I saw. All I know is this. I am proud of my calling, after all, though it has been attended by one dreadful drawback, which has told upon my heart, and almost equally upon my skeleton.' and i mean to live by my calling putting the same meaning into other words i do not mean to turn a single dishonest penny by this affair as the best amends i can make to you for having ever gone into it i make known to you as a warning what wegg has found out my opinion is that wegg is not to be silenced at a modest price and i build that opinion on his beginning to dispose of your property the moment he knew his power whether it's worth your while to silence him at any price you will decide for yourself, and take your measures accordingly. As far as I am concerned, I have no price. If I am ever called upon for the truth, I tell it, but I want to do no more than I have now done and ended. "'Thank ye, Venus,' said Mr. Boffin, with a hearty grip of his hand. "'Thank ye, Venus, thank ye, Venus,' and then walked up and down the little shop in great agitation. "'But look here, Venus,' he by and by resumed, nervously sitting down again, if I have to buy Wegg up, I shan't buy him any cheaper for your being out of it. Instead of his having half the money, it was to have been half, I suppose. 
share and share alike. It was to have been half, sir, answered Venus. Instead of that, you now have all. I shall play the same, if not more. For you tell me he's an unconscionable dog, a ravenous rascal. He is, said Venus. Don't you think, Venus, insinuated Mr. Boffin, after looking at the fire for a while, don't you feel as if you might like to pretend to be in it till Wegg was brought up, and then ease your mind by handing over to me what you had made believed a pocket? No, I don't, sir, returned Venus, very positively. Not to make amends, insinuated Mr. Boffin. No, sir, it seems to me, after maturely thinking it over, that the best amends for having got out of the square is to get back into the square. Hmm, mused Mr. Boffin. When you say the square, you mean— I mean, said Venus, stoutly and shortly, the right. Hmm, it appears to me, said Mr. Boffin, grumbling over the fire in an injured manner, that the right is with me, if it's anywhere. I have much more right to the old man's money than the crown can ever have. What was the crown to him, except the king's taxes? Whereas me and my wife, we was all in all to him. Mr. Venus, with his head upon his hands, rendered melancholy by the contemplation of Mr. Boffin's avarice, only murmured to steep himself in the luxury of that frame of mind. She did not wish so to regard herself, nor yet to be so regarded. "'And how am I to live?' asked Mr. Boffin piteously. "'If I'm to be going buying fellows up out of the little lot I've got, and how am I to set about it? When, when am I to get my money ready?' When am I to make a bid? You haven't told me when he threatens to drop down upon me." Venus explained under what conditions, and with what views, the dropping down upon Mr. Boffin was held over until the mounds should be cleared away. Mr. Boffin listened attentively. "'I suppose,' said he, with a gleam of hope, "'there's no doubt about the genuineness and date of this confounded will.' "'None, whatever,' said Mr. Venus. "'Where might it be deposited at present?' asked Mr. Boffin, in a wheedling tone. "'It's in my possession, sir.' "'Is it?' he cried with great eagerness. "'Now, for any liberal sum of money that could be agreed upon, Venus, would you put it in the fire?' "'No, sir, I wouldn't,' interrupted Mr. Venus. "'Nor pass it over to me?' "'That would be the same thing, no, sir,' said Mr. Venus. The golden dustman seemed about to pursue these questions, when a stumping noise was heard outside, coming towards the door. "'Hush! Here's Wegg,' said Venus. "'Get behind the young alligator in the corner, Mr. Boffin, and judge him for yourself. I won't light a candle till he's gone. There'll only be the glow of the fire. Wegg's well acquainted with the alligator, and he won't take but ill a notice of him. Draw your legs in, Mr. Boffin. At present I see a pair of shoes at the end of his tail.' "'Get your head well behind his smile, Mr. Boffin, and you'll lie comfortable there. You'll find plenty of room behind his smile. He's a little dusty, but he's very like you in tone. Are you right, sir?' Mr. Boffin had but whispered an affirmative response when Wegg came stumping in. "'Partner,' said that gentleman in a sprightly manner, "'how's yourself?' "'Tolerable,' returned Mr. Venus. "'Not much to boast of.' "'Indeed!' said Wegg. "'Sorry, partner, that you're not picking up faster, but your soul's too large for your body, sir. That's where it is. And how's our stock in trade, partner? Safe bind, safe find, partner. Is that about it?' "'Do you wish to see it?' asked Venus. "'If you please, partner,' 
said Wegg, rubbing his hands, "'I wish to see it jaintly with yourself. "'Or, in similar words, to some that was set to music some time back, "'I wish you to see it with your eyes, and I will pledge with mine.' Turning his back and turning a key, Mr. Venus produced the document, holding on by his usual corner. Mr. Wegg, holding on by the opposite corner, sat down on the seat so lately vacated by Mr. Boffin, and looked it over. "'All right, sir,' he slowly and unwillingly admitted, in his reluctance to lose his hold. "'All right,' and greedily watched his partner as he turned his back again, and turned his key again. "'There's nothing new, I suppose,' said Venus, resuming his low chair behind the counter. "'Yes, there is, sir.' replied Wegg. There was something new this morning. That foxy old grasper and griper. Mr. Boffin, inquired Venus, with a glance towards the alligator's yard or two of smile. Mr. Be blowed, cried Wegg, yielding to his honest indignation. Boffin, dusty Boffin, that foxy old grunter and grinder, sir, turns into the yard this morning to meddle with our property a menial too of his own a young man by the name of sloppy he got when i say to him what do you want here young man this is your private yard he pulls out a paper from boffin's other blackguard the one i was passed over for this is to authorize sloppy to overlook the carting and to watch the work that's pretty strong i think mr venus remember he doesn't know yet of our claim on the property suggested venus "'Then he must have a hint of it,' said Wegg, "'and a strong one that'll jog his terrors a bit. "'Give him an inch, and he'll take an ell. "'Let him alone this time, and what'll he do with our property next? "'I'll tell you what, Mr. Venus, it comes to this. "'I must be overbearing with Boffin, or I shall fly into several pieces. "'I can't contain myself when I look at him. "'Every time I see him putting his hand in his pocket, "'I see him putting it into my pocket.' Every time I hear him jingling his money, I hear him taking liberties with my money. Flesh and blood can't bear it. No, said Mr. Wegg, greatly exasperated, and I go further. A wooden leg can't bear it. But, Mr. Wegg, urged Venus, it was your own idea that he should not be exploded upon till the bounds were carted away. But it was likewise my idea, Mr. Venus retorted Wegg, that if he came sneaking and sniffing about the property, he should be threatened, given to understand that he has no right to it, and be made our slave. Wasn't that my idea, Mr. Venus?' "'It certainly was, Mr. Wegg. It certainly was, as you say, partner,' assented Wegg, put into a better humour by the ready admission. "'Very well. I consider he's planting one of his menial tools in the yard, and act of sneaking and sniffing.' and his nose shall be put to the grindstone for it. "'It was not your fault, Mr. Wegg, I must admit,' said Venus, "'that he got off with the Dutch bottle that night.' "'As you handsomely say again, partner, no, it was not my fault. I'd have had that bottle out of him. Was it to be borne that he should come, like a thief in the dark, digging among stuff that was far more ours than his, seeing that we could deprive him of every grain of it if he didn't buy us at our own figure, and carry off treasure from its bowels? No, it was not to be borne, and for that too his nose shall be put to the grindstone. How do you propose to do it, Mr. Wegg? To put his nose to the grindstone? I propose— 
returned that estimable man, to insult him openly. And, if looking into this eye of mine, he dares to offer a word in answer, to retort upon him before he can take his breath, add another word to that, you dusty old dog, and you're a beggar. Suppose he says nothing, Mr. Wegg. Then, replied Wegg, we shall have come to an understanding with very little trouble, and I'll break him and drive him, Mr. Venus. I'll put him in harness, and I'll bear him up tight, and I'll break him and drive him. The harder the old dust is driven, sir, the higher he'll pay. And I mean to be paid high, Mr. Venus, I promise you. You speak quite revengefully, Mr. Wegg. Revengefully, sir, is it for him that I have declined and falled night after night? Is it for his pleasure that I've waited at home of an evening, like a set of skittles, to be set up and knocked over, set up and knocked over, by whatever balls or books he chose to bring against me? Why, I'm a hundred times the man he is, sir, five hundred times. Perhaps it was with the malicious intent of urging him on to his worst, that Mr. Venus looked as if he doubted that. What? Was it outside the house, at present occupied, to its disgrace, by that minion of fortune and worm of the hour? said Wegg, falling back upon his strongest terms of reprobation, and slapping the counter. That I, Silas Wegg, five hundred times the man he ever was, sat in all weathers, waiting for a errand or a customer, was it outside that very house, as I first set eyes upon him, rolling in the lap of luxury, when I was selling apenny ballads there for a living? And am I a grovel in the dust for him to walk over? No. There was a grin upon the ghastly countenance of the French gentleman, under the influence of the firelight, as if he were computing how many thousand slanderers and traitors array themselves against the fortunate, on premises exactly answering to those of Mr. Wegg. One might have fancied that the big-headed babies were toppling over with their hydrocephalic attempts to reckon up the children of men who transform their benefactors into their injurers by the same process. The yard or two of smile on the part of the alligator might have been invested with the meaning, all about this was quite familiar knowledge down in the depths of the slime, ages ago. "'But,' said Wegg, possibly with some slight perception to the foregoing effect. "'Your speaking countenance remarks, Mr. Venus, that I'm duller and savager than usual. Perhaps I have allowed myself to brood too much. Begone, dull care. Tis gone, sir. I've looked in upon you, and empire resumes her sway. For, as the song says, subject to your correction, sir, when the art of a man is depressed with cares, the mist is dispelled if Venus appears. Like the notes of a fiddle, you sweetly, sir, sweetly, raises our spirits and charms our ears. Good night, sir. I shall have a word or two to say to you, Mr. Wegg, before long, remarked Venus, respecting my share in the project we've been speaking of. My time, sir, returned Wegg, is yours. In the meanwhile, let it be fully understood that I shall not neglect bringing the grindstone to bear, nor yet bringing Dusty Boffin's nose to it. His nose, once brought to it, shall be held to it by these hands, Mr. Venus, till the sparks flies out in showers. With this agreeable promise, Wegg stumped out, and shut the shop-door after him. "'Wait till I light a candle, Mr. Boffin,' said Venus. 
and you come out more comfortable. So, he lighting a candle, and holding it up at arm's length, Mr. Boffin disengaged himself from behind the alligator's smile, with an expression of countenance so very downcast, that it not only appeared as if the alligator had the whole of the joke to himself, but further as if it had been conceived and executed at Mr. Boffin's expense. "'That's a treacherous fellow,' said Mr. Boffin, dusting his arms and legs, as he came forth, the alligator having been but musty company. "'That's a dreadful fellow.' "'The alligator, sir?' said Venus. "'No, Venus, no, the serpent.' "'You'll have the goodness to notice, Mr. Boffin.' remarked Venus, that I said nothing to him about my going out of the affair altogether, because I didn't wish to take you anyways by surprise. But I can't be too soon out of it for my satisfaction, Mr. Boffin, and I now put it to you when it will suit your views for me to retire. "'Thank ye, Venus, thank ye, Venus. But I don't know what to say,' returned Mr. Boffin. "'I don't know what to do. He'll drop down on me anyway. He seems fully determined to drop down, don't he?' Mr. Venus opined that such was clearly his intention. "'You might be sort of a protection for me if you remained in it,' said Mr. Boffin. "'You might stand betwixt him and me, and take the edge off him. Don't you feel as if you could make a show of remaining in it, Venus, till I had time to turn myself around?' Venus naturally inquired how long Mr. Boffin thought it might take him to turn himself round. "'I'm sure I don't know,' was the answer, given quite at a loss. Everything is so at sixes and sevens. If I never come into the property, I shouldn't have minded. But being in it, it would be very trying to be turned out. Now, don't you acknowledge that it would, Venus?" Mr. Venus preferred, he said, to leave Mr. Boffin to arrive at his own conclusions on that delicate question. "'I am sure I don't know what to do,' said Mr. Boffin. "'If I ask advice of anyone else, it's only letting in another person to be bought out.' and then I shall be ruined that way, and might as well have given up the property, and gone slap to the workhouse. If I was to take advice of my young man Rokesmith, I should have to buy him out. Sooner or later, of course, he'd drop down upon me, like Wegg. I was brought into the world to be dropped down upon, it appears to me." Mr. Venus listened to these lamentations in silence, while Mr. Boffin jogged to and fro, holding his pockets as if he had a pain in them. After all. You haven't said what you mean to do yourself, Venus. When you do go out of it, how do you mean to go?" Venus replied that as Wegg had found the document and handed it to him, it was his intention to hand it back to Wegg, with the declaration that he himself would have nothing to say to it or do with it, and that Wegg must act as he chose and take the consequences. "'And then he drops down with his whole weight upon me!' cried Mr. Boffin ruefully. I'd sooner be dropped upon by you than by him, or even by you jointly, than by him alone." Mr. Venus could only repeat that it was his fixed intention to betake himself to the paths of science, and to walk in the same all the days of his life, not dropping down upon his fellow-creatures until they were deceased, and then only to articulate them to the best of his humble ability. "'How long could you be persuaded to keep up the appearance of remaining in it?' asked Mr. Boffin, retiring on his other idea. "'Could you be got to do so, till the mounds are gone?' "'No. That would protract the mental uneasiness of Mr. Venus too long,' he said. "'Not if I was to show you reason now,' demanded Mr. Boffin. "'Not if I was to show you good and sufficient reason?' If by good and sufficient reason Mr. Boffin meant honest and unimpeachable reason, 
that might weigh with Mr. Venus against his personal wishes and convenience, but he must add that he saw no opening to the possibility of such reason being shown him. "'Come and see me, Mr. Venus,' said Boffin, "'at my house.' "'Is the reason there, sir?' asked Mr. Venus, with an incredulous smile and blink. "'It may be, or may not be,' said Mr. Boffin, "'just as you view it. But in the meantime, don't go out of the matter. Look here. Do this. Give me your word that you won't take any steps with Wegg without my knowledge, just as I have given you my word that I won't without yours.' "'Done, Mr. Boffin,' said Venus, after brief consideration. "'Thank you, Venus. Thank you, Venus. Done. When shall I come to see you, Mr. Boffin? When you like. The sooner the better. I must be going now. Good night, Venus.' "'Good night, sir. And good night to the rest of the present company,' said Mr. Boffin, glancing round the shop. "'They make a queer show, Venus, and I should like to be better acquainted with them some day. Good night, Venus. Good night. Thank you, Venus. Thank you, Venus.' With that he jogged out into the street, and jogged upon his homeward way. "'Now I wonder,' he meditated as he went along, nursing his stick, "'whether it can be that Venus is setting himself to get the better of Wegg.' whether it can be that he means, when I have bought Wegg out, to have me all to himself, and to pick me clean to the bones. It was a cunning and suspicious idea, quite in the way of his school of misers, and he looked very cunning and suspicious as he went jogging through the streets. More than once or twice, more than twice or thrice, say half a dozen times, he took his stick from the arm on which he nursed it, and hit a straight sharp rap at the air with its head. Possibly the wooden countenance of Mr. Silas Wegg was incorporeally before him at those moments, for he hit with intense satisfaction. He was within a few streets of his own house, when a little private carriage, coming in the contrary direction, passed him, turned round, and passed him again. It was a little carriage of eccentric movement, for again he heard it stop behind him and turn round, and again he saw it pass him. Then it stopped, and then went on, out of sight but not far out of sight, for, when he came to the corner of his own street, there it stood again. There was a lady's face at the window as he came up with this carriage, and he was passing it when the lady softly called to him by his name. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' said Mr. Boffin, coming to a stop. "'It is Mrs. Lammle,' said the lady. Mr. Boffin went up to the window, and hoped Mrs. Lammle was well." "'Not very well, dear Mr. Boffin. I have flattered myself by being, perhaps foolishly, uneasy and anxious. I have been waiting for you some time. Can I speak to you?' Mr. Boffin proposed that Mrs. Lammle should drive on to his house a few hundred yards further. "'I would rather not, Mr. Boffin, unless you particularly wish it. I feel the difficulty and delicacy of the matter so much that I would rather avoid speaking to you at your own home. You must think this very strange." Mr. Boffin said no, but meant yes. "'It is because I am so grateful for the good opinion of all my friends, and am so touched by it, that I cannot bear to run the risk of forfeiting it, in any case, even in the cause of duty. I have asked my husband, my dear Alfred, Mr. Boffin, whether it is the cause of duty, and he has most emphatically said yes. I wish I had asked him sooner. It would have spared me much distress." "'Can this be more dropping down upon me?' thought Mr. Boffin, 
quite bewildered. "'It was Alfred who sent me to you, Mr. Boffin. Alfred said, "'Don't come back, Sophronia, until you have seen Mr. Boffin, and told him all. Whatever he may think of it, he ought certainly to know it. Would you mind coming into the carriage?' Mr. Boffin answered, "'Not at all,' and took his seat at Mrs. Lammle's side. "'Drive slowly anywhere,' Mrs. Lammle called to her coachman, "'and don't let the carriage rattle.' "'It must be more dropping down, I think,' said Mr. Boffin to himself. "'What next?' End of Book Three Chapter Fourteen Book Three, Chapter Fifteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Three, A Long Lane. Chapter Fifteen, The Golden Dustman at His Worst. The breakfast table at Mr. Boffin's was usually a very pleasant one, and was always presided over by Bella as though he began each new day in his healthy natural character and some waking hours were necessary to his relapse into the corrupting influences of his wealth the face and the demeanour of the golden dustman were generally unclouded at that meal it would have been easy to believe then that there was no change in him it was as the day went on that the clouds gathered and the brightness of the morning became obscured one might have said that the shadows of avarice and distrust lengthened as his own shadow lengthened, and that the night closed around him gradually. But one morning long afterwards to be remembered, it was black midnight with the golden dustman when he first appeared. His altered character had never been so grossly marked. His bearing towards his secretary was so charged with insolent distrust and arrogance that the latter rose and left the table before breakfast was half done. The look he directed at the secretary's retiring figure was so cunningly malignant that Bella would have sat astounded and indignant, even though he had not gone the length of secretly threatening Rokesmith with his clenched fist as he closed the door. This unlucky morning, of all mornings in the year, was the morning next after Mr. Boffin's interview with Mrs. Lammle in her little carriage. Bella looked to Mrs. Boffin's face for comment on, or explanation of, this stormy humour in her husband but none was there. An anxious and a distressed observation of her own face was all she could read in it. When they were left alone together, which was not until noon, for Mr. Boffin sat long in his easy chair, by turns jogging up and down the breakfast-room, clenching his fist and muttering, Bella, in consternation, asked her what had happened, what was wrong. "'I am forbidden to speak to you about it, Bella, dear. I mustn't tell you.' was all the answer she could get. And still whenever, in her wonder and dismay, she raised her eyes to Mrs. Boffin's face, she saw in it the same anxious and distressed observation of her own. Oppressed by her sense that trouble was impending, and lost in speculations why Mrs. Boffin should look at her as if she had any part in it, Bella found the day long and dreary. It was far on in the afternoon, when, she being in her own room, a servant brought her a message from Mr. Boffin, begging her to come to his. Mrs. Boffin was there, seated on a sofa, 
and Mr. Boffin was jogging up and down. On seeing Bella, he stopped, beckoned her to him, and drew her arm through his. "'Don't be alarmed, my dear,' he said, gently. "'I am not angry with you. Why, you actually tremble. Don't be alarmed, Bella, my dear. I'll see you righted.' "'See me righted,' thought Bella, and then repeated aloud in a tone of astonishment, "'See me righted, sir?' "'Aye, aye,' said Mr. Boffin. "'See you righted. Send Mr. Rokesmith here, you, sir.' Bella would have been lost in perplexity if there had been pause enough, but the servant found Mr. Rokesmith near at hand, and he almost immediately presented himself. "'Shut the door, sir,' said Mr. Boffin. "'I've got something to say to you, which I fancy you'll not be pleased to hear.' "'I am sorry to reply, Mr. Boffin,' returned the secretary, as, having closed the door, he turned and faced him, "'that I think that very likely. "'What do you mean?' blustered Mr. Boffin. "'I mean that it has become no novelty to me to hear from your lips what I would rather not hear.' "'Oh, perhaps we shall change that,' said Mr. Boffin, with a threatening roll of his head. "'I hope so,' returned the secretary. He was quiet and respectful, but stood, as Bella thought, and was glad to think, on his manhood, too. "'Now, sir,' said Mr. Boffin, Look at this young lady on my arm." Bella, involuntarily raising her eyes, when this sudden reference was made to herself, met those of Mr. Rokesmith. He was pale, and seemed agitated. Then her eyes passed on to Mrs. Boffin's, and she met the look again. In a flash it enlightened her, and she began to understand what she had done. "'I say to you, sir,' Mr. Boffin repeated, "'look at this young lady on my arm.' "'I do so,' returned the secretary. As his glance rested again on Bella for a moment, she thought there was reproach in it. But it is possible that the reproach was within herself. "'How dare you, sir?' said Mr. Boffin. "'Temper, unknown to me, with this young lady. How dare you come out of your station, and your place in my house, to pester this young lady with your impudent addresses?' "'I must decline to answer questions,' said the secretary, "'that are so offensively asked.' "'You decline to answer?' retorted Mr. Boffin. "'You decline to answer, do you? "'Then I'll tell you what it is, Rokesmith. "'I'll answer for you. "'There are two sides to this matter, and I'll take them separately. "'The first side is sheer insolence. "'That's the first side.' "'The secretary smiled with some bitterness, as though he would have said, so I see and hear. "'It was sheer insolence in you, I tell you,' said Mr. Boffin, "'even to think of this young lady. This young lady was far above you. This young lady was no match for you. This young lady was lying in wait, as she was qualified to do, for money, and you had no money.' Bella hung her head, and seemed to shrink a little from Mr. Boffin's protecting arm. "'What are you? I should like to know.' pursued Mr. Boffin, that you were to have the audacity to follow up this young lady. This young lady was looking about the market for a good bid. She wasn't in it to be snapped up by fellows that had no money to lay out, nothing to buy with. Oh, Mr. Boffin, Mrs. Boffin, pray say something for me, murmured Bella, disengaging her arm and covering her face with her hands. 
old lady,' said Mr. Boffin, anticipating his wrath, "'you hold your tongue. Bella, my dear, don't you let yourself be put out. I'll write you.' "'But you don't, you don't write me,' exclaimed Bella, with great emphasis. "'You wrong me, wrong me.' "'Don't you be put out, my dear,' complacently retorted Mr. Boffin. "'I'll bring this young man to book. Now, you, Rokesmith, you can't decline to hear, you know, as well as to answer. You hear me tell you that the first side of your conduct was insolence, insolence and presumption. Answer me one thing, if you can. Didn't this young lady tell you so herself?' "'Did I, Mr. Rokesmith?' asked Bella, with her face still covered. "'Oh, say, Mr. Rokesmith, did I?' "'Don't be distressed, Miss Wilfer. It matters very little now.' "'Ah! You can't deny it, though.' said Mr. Boffin, with a knowing shake of his head. "'But I have asked him to forgive me since,' cried Bella, "'and I would ask him to forgive me now again, upon my knees, if it would spare him.' Here Mrs. Boffin broke out a-crying. "'Old lady,' said Mr. Boffin, "'stop that noise. Tender-hearted in you, Miss Bella, but I mean to have it out, right through, with this young man, having got him into a corner. Now, you Rokesmith, I'll tell you, that's one side of your conduct, insolence and presumption. Now, I'm a-coming to the other, which is much worse. This was a speculation of yours. I indignantly deny it. It's of no use your denying it. It doesn't signify a bit whether you deny it or not. I've got a head upon my shoulders, and it ain't a baby's. What? said Mr. Boffin gathering himself together in his most suspicious attitude, and wrinkling his face into a very map of curves and corners. "'Don't I know what grabs are made at a man with money? If I didn't keep my eyes open, and my pockets buttoned, shouldn't I be brought to the workhouse before I knew where I was? Wasn't the experience of Dancer, and Elwes, and Hopkins, and Blueberry Jones, and ever so many more of them similar to mine?' Didn't everybody want to make grabs at what they'd got, and bring up to poverty and ruin? Weren't they forced to hide everything belonging to him, for fear it should be snatched from him? Of course they was. I shall be told next that they didn't know human nature. They, poor creatures, murmured the secretary. What do you say? asked Mr. Boffin, snapping at him. However, you needn't be at the trouble of repeating it, for it ain't worth hearing, and won't go down with me. I'm a-going to unfold your plan before this young lady. I'm a-going to show this young lady the second view of you, and nothing you can say will stave it off. Now attend here, Bella, my dear. Oaksmith, you're a needy chap. You're a chap that I pick up in the street. Are you, or ain't you? Go on, Mr. Boffin. Don't appeal to me. Not appeal to you, retorted Mr. Boffin, as if he hadn't done so. No, I should hope not. Appealing to you would be rather a rum course. As I was saying, you're a needy chap that I pick up in the street. You come and ask me in the street to take you for a secretary, and I take you. Very good. Very bad, murmured the secretary. What do you say? asked Mr. Boffin, snapping at him again. He returned no answer. Mr. Boffin, after eyeing him with a comical look of discomfited curiosity, was fain to begin afresh. This Rokesmith is a needy young man that I take for my secretary out of the open street. This Rokesmith gets acquainted with my affairs, and gets to know that I mean to settle a sum of money on this young lady, 
"'Oh, ho!' says this Rokesmith. Here Mr. Boffin clapped a finger against his nose, and tapped it several times with a sneaking air, as embodying Rokesmith confidentially confabulating with his own nose. "'This will be a good haul. I'll go in for this.' And so this Rokesmith, greedy and angering, begins a-creeping on his hands and knees towards the money. Not so bad a speculation, either. For, if this young lady had had less spirit, or had had less sense, through being at all in the romantic line, by George he might have worked it out and made it pay. But fortunately, she was too many for him, and a pretty figure he cuts now he is exposed. There he stands said Mr. Boffin, addressing Rooksmith himself with ridiculous inconsistency. Look at him! Your unfortunate suspicions, Mr. Boffin, began the secretary. Precious unfortunate for you, I can tell you, said Mr. Boffin, are not to be combated by any one, and I address myself to no such hopeless task. But I will say a word upon the truth. Yah! Much you care about the truth, said Mr. Boffin, with a snap of his fingers. "'Noddy, my dear love,' expostulated his wife. "'Oh, lady,' returned Mr. Boffin, "'you keep still. "'I say to this Rokesmith here, "'much he cares about the truth. "'I tell him again, "'much he cares about the truth.' "'Our connection being at an end, Mr. Boffin,' said the secretary, "'it can be a very little moment to me what you say.' "'Oh, you're knowing enough.' retorted Mr. Boffin, with a sly look, to have found out that our connection's at an end, eh? But you can't get beforehand with me. Look at this in my hand. This is your pay, on your discharge. You can only follow suit. You can't deprive me of the lead. Let's have no pretending that you discharge yourself. I discharge you.' "'So that I go,' remarked the secretary, waving the point aside with his hand. "'It is all one to me.' "'Is it?' said Mr. Boffin. But it's two to me, let me tell you. Allowing a fellow that's found out to discharge himself is one thing. Discharging him for insolence and presumption, and likewise for designs upon his master's money, is another. One and one's two, not one. Old lady, don't you cut in. You keep still. "'Have you said all you wish to say to me?' demanded the secretary. "'I don't know whether I have or not,' answered Mr. Boffin. "'It depends.' "'Perhaps you will consider whether there are any other strong expressions that you would like to bestow upon me?' "'I'll consider that,' said Mr. Boffin, obstinately. "'At my convenience, and not at yours. You want the last word? It may not be suitable to let you have it.' "'Noddy! My dear, dear Noddy! You sound so hard!' cried poor Mrs. Boffin, not to be quite repressed. "'Old lady,' said her husband, but without harshness, if you cut in, when requested not, I'll get a pillow, and carry you out of the room upon it. What do you want to say, you, Rokesmith? To you, Mr. Boffin, nothing. But to Miss Wilfer, and to your good kind wife, a word. Out with it, then, replied Mr. Boffin, and cut it short, for we've had enough of you. I have borne, said the secretary, in a low voice, with my false position here, that I might not be separated from Miss Wilfer. To be near her has been a recompense to me from day to day, even for the undeserved treatment I have had here, and for the degraded aspect in which she has often seen me. Since Miss Wilfer rejected me, I have never again urged my suit 
to the best of my belief, with a spoken syllable or a look. But I have never changed in my devotion to her, except, if she will forgive my saying so, that it is deeper than it was, and better founded. Now, mark this chap saying, Miss Wilfer, when he means L.S.D., cried Mr. Boffin, with a cunning wink. Now, mark this chap's making Miss Wilfer stand for pound, shilling, and pence. My feeling for Miss Wilfer, pursued the secretary, without deigning to notice him, is not one to be ashamed of. I avow it. I love her. Let me go where I may when I presently leave this house. I shall go into a blank life, leaving her. Leaving L.S.D. behind me? said Mr. Boffin, by way of commentary, with another wink, that I am incapable, the secretary went on, still without heeding him, of a mercenary project, or a mercenary thought, in connection with Miss Wilfer, is nothing meritorious in me, because any prize that I could put before my fancy would sink into insignificance beside her. If the greatest wealth or the highest rank were hers, it would only be important in my sight as removing her still farther from me, and making me more hopeless, if that could be. "'Say,' remarked the secretary, looking full at his late master, "'say that with a word she could strip Mr. Boffin of his fortune, and take possession of it, she would be of no greater worth in my eyes than she is.' "'What do you think by this time, old lady?' asked Mr. Boffin, turning to his wife in a bantering tone, "'about this rogue-smith here, and his caring for the truth. You needn't say what you think, my dear, because I don't want you to cut in, but you can think it all the same. As to taking possession of my property, I warrant you he wouldn't do that himself if he could.' "'No,' returned the secretary, with another full look. "'Ha!' <laughs> laughed Mr. Boffin. "'There's nothing like a good un while you are about it.' "'I have been for a moment,' said the secretary, turning from him, and falling into his former manner, "'diverted from the little I have to say. "'My interest in Miss Wilfer began when I first saw her, "'even began when I had only heard of her. "'It was, in fact, the cause of my throwing myself in Mr. Boffin's way, "'and entering his service. "'Miss Wilfer has never known this until now. "'I mention it now only as a corroboration, though I hope it may be needless, of my being free from the sordid design attributed to me. "'Now, this is a very artful dog,' said Mr. Boffin, with a deep look. "'This is a longer-headed schemer than I thought him. See how patiently and methodically he goes to work. He gets to know about me, and my property, and about this young lady, and her share in poor young John's story, and he puts this and that together, and he says to himself— I'll get in with Boffin, and I'll get in with this young lady, and I'll work them both at the same time, and I'll bring my pigs to market somewhere. I hear him say it. Bless you! I look at him now, and I see him say it. Mr. Boffin pointed at the culprit, as it were in the act, and hugged himself in his great penetration. But luckily he hadn't to deal with the people he supposed. Bella, my dear— said Mr. Boffin. "'No, luckily he had to deal with you, and with me, and with Daniel, and Miss Dancer, and with Elwes, and with Vulture Hopkins, and with Blueberry Jones, and all the rest of us, one down t'other come on. And he's beat. That's what he is. Regularly beat. 
he thought to squeeze money out of us, and he has done for himself instead. Bella, my dear. Bella, my dear, made no response, gave no sign of acquiescence. When she had first covered her face, she had sunk upon a chair with her hands resting on the back of it, and had never moved since. There was a short silence at this point, and Mrs. Boffin softly rose, as if to go to her. But Mr. Boffin stopped her with a gesture, and she obediently sat down again, and stayed where she was. "'There's your pay, Mr. Rokesmith,' said the golden dustman, jerking the folded scrap of paper he had in his hand towards his late secretary. "'I dare say you can stoop to pick it up, after what you have stooped to here.' "'I have stooped to nothing but this,' Rokesmith answered, as he took it from the ground. "'And this is mine, for I have earned it by the hardest of hard labour. "'You're a pretty quick packer, I hope,' said Mr. Boffin, "'because the sooner you are gone, bag and baggage, the better for all parties.' "'You need have no fear of my lingering.' "'There's just one thing, though,' said Mr. Boffin, "'that I should like to ask you, before we come to a good riddance.' if it was only to show this young lady how conceited you schemers are in thinking that nobody finds out how you contradict yourselves. "'Ask me anything you wish to ask,' returned Rokesmith, "'but use the expedition that you recommend.' "'You pretend to have a mighty admiration for this young lady,' said Mr. Boffin, laying his hand protectingly on Bella's head without looking down at her. "'I do not pretend.' "'Oh, well,' "'You have a mighty admiration for this young lady, since you are so particular?' "'Yes.' "'How do you reconcile that, with this young lady's being a weak-spirited, improvident idiot, not knowing what was due to herself, flinging up her money to the church weathercocks, and racing off at a spitting space for the workhouse?' "'I don't understand you.' "'Don't you? Or won't you?' What else could you have made this young lady out to be, if she had listened to such addresses as yours? What else, if I had been so happy as to win her affections and possess her heart? Win her affections, retorted Mr. Boffin, with an effable contempt, and possess her heart? Mew, says the cat, quack, quack, says the duck, bow, wow, wow, says the dog, win her affections and possess her heart, mew, quack, quack, bow, wow. John Rokesmith stared at him, in his outburst, as if with some faint idea that he had gone mad. "'What is due to this young lady,' said Mr. Boffin, "'is money, and this young lady right well knows it.' "'You slander the young lady.' "'You slander the young lady, you with your affections and hearts and trumpery,' returned Mr. Boffin. "'It's of a piece with the rest of your behaviour. I heard of these doings of yours only last night, or you should have heard of him from me sooner, take your oath of it. I heard of him from a lady, with as good a headpiece as the best, and she knows this young lady, and I know this young lady, and we all three know that it's money she makes a stand for. Money, 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 and that you and your affections and hearts are a lie, sir. Mrs. Boffin, said Rokesmith, quietly turning to her. "'For your delicate and unvarying kindness, I thank you with the warmest gratitude. Good-bye. Miss Wilfer, good-bye.' "'And now, my dear,' 
said Mr. Boffin, laying his hand on Bella's head again. "'You may begin to make yourself quite comfortable, and I hope you feel that you've been righted.' But Bella was so far from appearing to feel it, that she shrank from his hand and from the chair, and starting up in an incoherent passion of tears, and stretching out her arms, cried, "'Oh, Mr. Rokesmith, before you go, if you could but make me poor again—' Oh, make me poor again! Somebody! I beg and pray, or my heart will break if this goes on. Pa, dear, make me poor again, and take me home. I was bad enough there, but I have been so much worse here. Don't give me money, Mr. Boffin. I won't have money. Keep it away from me, and only let me speak to good little Pa, and lay my head upon his shoulder, and tell him all my griefs. Nobody else can understand me. "'Nobody else can comfort me. "'Nobody else knows how unworthy I am, "'and yet can love me like a little child. "'I am better with Pa than any one, "'more innocent, more sorry, more glad.' "'So crying out in a wild way that she could not bear this, "'Bella drooped her head on Mrs. Boffin's ready breast. "'John Rokesmith, from his place in the room, "'and Mr. Boffin from his, looked on at her in silence until she was silent herself. Then Mr. Boffin observed in a soothing and comfortable tone, "'There, my dear, there. You're righted now, and it's all right. I don't wonder, I'm sure, at your being a little flurried by having a scene with this fellow. But it's all over, my dear, and you're righted, and it's, and it's all right.' Which Mr. Boffin repeated with a highly satisfied air of completeness and finality. "'I hate you!' cried Bella, turning suddenly upon him with a stamp of her little foot. "'At least, I can't hate you, but I don't like you.' "'Hullo!' exclaimed Mr. Boffin, in an amazed undertone. "'You're a scalding, unjust, abusive, aggravating, bad old creature!' cried Bella. I am angry with my ungrateful self for calling you names, but you are, you are, you know you are. Mr. Boffin stared here, and stared there, as misdoubting that he must be in some sort of fit. I have hurt you with shame, said Bella, with shame for myself, and with shame for you. You ought to be above the base tail-bearing of a time-serving woman, but you are above nothing now. Mr. Boffin, seeming to become convinced that this was a fit, rolled his eyes and loosened his neckcloth. "'When I came here, I respected you and honoured you, and I soon loved you,' cried Bella. "'And now I can't bear the sight of you. At least I don't know that I ought to go so far as that. Only you're a—you're a monster!' Having shot this bolt out with a great expenditure of force, Bella hysterically laughed and cried together. "'The best wish I can wish you is,' said Bella, returning to the charge, "'that you had not one single farthing in the world. "'If any true friend and well-wisher could make you a bankrupt, you would be a duck. "'But as a man of property, you are a demon.' After dispatching the second bolt, with a still greater expenditure of force, Bella laughed and cried still more. "'Mr. Rokesmith, pray stay one moment.' "'Pray hear one word from me before you go. "'I am deeply sorry for the reproaches you have borne on my account. "'Out of the depths of my heart I earnestly and truly beg your pardon.' 
As she stepped towards him, he met her. As she gave him her hand, he put it to his lips, and said, "'God bless you!' No laughing was mixed with Bella's crying then. Her tears were pure and fervent. "'There is not an ungenerous word that I have heard addressed to you, heard with scorn and indignation, Mr. Rokesmith, but it has wounded me far more than you, for I have deserved it, and you never have. Mr. Rokesmith, it is to me you owe this perverted account of what passed between us that night. I parted with the secret, even while I was angry with myself for doing so. It was very bad in me, but indeed it was not wicked. I did it in a moment of, of conceit and folly, one of my many such moments, one of my many such hours, years, as I am punished for it severely. Try to forgive it. I do, with all my soul. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Don't part from me till I have said one other word, to do you justice. The only fault you can be truly charged with, in having spoken to me as you did that night, with how much delicacy and how much forbearance no one but I can know or be grateful to you for, is that you laid yourself open to be slighted by a worldly, shallow girl whose head was turned, and who was quite unable to rise to the worth of what you offered her. Mr. Rokesmith, that girl has often seen herself in a pitiful and poor light since, but never in so pitiful and poor a light as now, when the mean tone in which she answered you, sordid and vain girl that she was, has been echoed in her ears by Mr. Boffin. He kissed her hand again. Mr. Boffin's speeches were detestable to me. "'Shocking to me,' said Bella, startling that gentleman with another stamp of her little foot. "'It is quite true that there was a time, and very lately, when I deserved to be so righted, Mr. Rokesmith. But I hope that I shall never deserve it again.' He once more put her hand to his lips, and then relinquished it, and left the room. Bella was hurrying back to the chair in which she had hidden her face so long, when, catching sight of Mrs. Boffin, by the way, she stopped at her. "'He is gone!' sobbed Bella indignantly, despairingly, in fifty ways at once, with her arms round Mrs. Boffin's neck. "'He has been most shamefully abused, and most unjustly and most basely driven away, and I am the cause of it!' All this time Mr. Boffin had been rolling his eyes over his loosened neckerchief, as if his fit were still upon him. Appearing now to think that he was coming too, he stared straight before him for a while, tied his neckerchief again, took several long inspirations, swallowed several times, and ultimately exclaimed with a deep sigh, as if he felt himself on the whole better, "'Well!' No word, good or bad, did Mrs. Boffin say, but she tenderly took care of Bella, and glanced at her husband as if for orders. Mr. Boffin, without imparting any, took his seat on a chair over against them, and there sat leaning forward with a fixed countenance, his legs apart, a hand on each knee, and his elbows squared, until Bella should dry her eyes and raise her head, which in the fullness of time she did. "'I must go home,' said Bella, rising hurriedly. "'I am very grateful to you for all you have done for me, but I can't stay here.' "'My darling girl!' 
remonstrated Mrs. Boffin. "'No, I can't stay here,' said Bella. "'I can't indeed. Oh, you vicious old thing!' This to Mr. Boffin. "'Don't be rash, my love,' urged Mrs. Boffin. "'Think well of what you do.' "'Yes, you'd better think well,' said Mr. Boffin. "'I shall never more think well of you,' cried Bella, cutting him short, with intense defiance in her expressive little eyebrows, and championship of the late secretary in every dimple. "'No, never again. Your money has changed you to marble. You are a hard-hearted miser. You are worse than Dancer, worse than Hopkins, worse than Blackberry Jones, worse than any of the wretches, and more.' proceeded Bella, breaking into tears again. "'You were wholly undeserving of the gentleman you have lost.' "'Why, you don't mean to say, Miss Bella,' the golden dustman slowly remonstrated, "'that you set up Rogesmith against me.' "'I do,' said Bella. "'He is worth a million of you.' Very pretty she looked, though very angry, as she made herself as tall as she possibly could, which was not extremely tall, and utterly renounced her patron with a lofty toss of her rich brown head. "'I would rather he thought well of me,' said Bella, "'though he swept the street for bread, than that you did, though you splashed the mud upon him from the wheels of a chariot of pure gold. There!' "'Well, I'm sure,' cried Mr. Boffin, staring. "'And for a long time past, when you have thought you set yourself above him, "'I have only seen you under his feet,' said Bella. "'There! And throughout! I saw in him the master, and I saw in you the man. There! And when you used him shamefully, I took his part and loved him. There! I boast of it!' After which a strong avowal, Bella underwent reaction, and cried to any extent, with her face on the back of her chair. "'Now look here!' said Mr. Boffin, as soon as he could find an opening for breaking the silence and striking in. "'Give me your attention, Bella. I am not angry.' "'I am,' said Bella. "'I say,' resumed the Golden Dustman, "'I am not angry, and I mean kindly to you, and I want to overlook this. So, you'll stay where you are, and we'll agree to say no more about it.' "'No, I can't stay here,' cried Bella, rising hurriedly again. I can't think of staying here. I must go home for good. Now, don't be silly, Mr. Boffin reasoned. Don't do what you can't undo. Don't do what you're sure to be sorry for. I shall never be sorry for it, said Bella, and I should always be sorry, and should every minute of my life despise myself if I remained here after what has happened. At least, Bella, argued Mr. Boffin, let there be no mistake about it. Look before you leap, you know. Stay where you are, and all's well, and all's as it was to be. Go away, and you can never come back. I know that I can never come back, and that's what I mean, said Bella. You mustn't expect, Mr. Boffin pursued, that I'm a-going to settle money on you, if you leave us like this, because I'm not. No, Bella, be careful, not one brass farthing. Expect? said Bella, haughtily. "'Do you think that any power on earth could make me take it, if you did, sir?' But there was Mrs. Boffin depart from, 
and, in the full flush of her dignity, the impressible little soul collapsed again. Down upon her knees before that good woman, she rocked herself upon her breast, and cried, and sobbed, and folded her in her arms with all her might. "'You're a dear, a dear, the best of dears,' cried Bella. "'You're the best of human creatures. I can never be thankful enough to you, and I can never forget you. If I should live to be blind and deaf, I know I shall see and hear you in my fancy, to the last of my dim old days.' Mrs. Boffin wept most heartily, and embraced her with all fondness, but said not one single word, except that she was her dear girl. She said that often enough to be sure, for she said it over and over again, but not one word else. Bella broke from her at length, and was going weeping out of the room, when in her own little queer affectionate way she half relented towards Mr. Boffin. "'I am very glad,' sobbed Bella, that I called you names, sir, because you richly deserved it. But I am very sorry that I called you names, because you used to be so different. Say good-bye. Good-bye, said Mr. Boffin shortly. If I knew which of your hands was the least spoilt, I would ask you to let me touch it, said Bella, for the last time. But not because I repent of what I have said to you, for I don't. It's true. "'Try the left hand,' said Mr. Boffin, holding it out in a stolid manner. "'It's the least used.' "'You have been wonderfully good and kind to me,' said Bella, "'and I kiss it for that. You have been as bad as bad could be to Mr. Rokesmith, and I threw it away for that. Thank you for myself, and good-bye.' "'Good-bye,' said Mr. Boffin, as before. Bella caught him round the neck and kissed him, and ran out for ever. She ran upstairs, and sat down on the floor in her own room, and cried abundantly. But the day was declining, and she had no time to lose. She opened all the places where she kept her dresses, selected only those she had brought with her, leaving all the rest, and made a great misshapen bundle of them to be sent for afterwards. "'I won't take one of the others,' said Bella, tying the knots of the bundle very tight in the severity of her resolution. "'I leave all the presents behind.' and begin again entirely on my own account." That the resolution might be thoroughly carried into practice, she even changed the dress she wore, for that in which she had come to the grand mansion. Even the bonnet she put on was the bonnet that had mounted into the boffin chariot at Holloway. "'Now I am complete,' said Bella. "'It's a little trying, but I have steeped my eyes in cold water, and I won't cry any more.' You have been a pleasant room to me, dear room, adieu. We shall never see each other again." With a parting kiss of her fingers to it, she softly closed the door, and went with a light foot down the great staircase, pausing and listening as she went, that she might meet none of the household. No one chanced to be about, and she got down to the hall in quiet. The door of the late secretary's room stood open. She peeped in as she passed and divined from the emptiness of his table, and the general appearance of things, that he was already gone. Softly opening the great hall door, and softly closing it upon herself, she turned and kissed it on the outside, insensible old combination of wood and iron that it was, before she ran away from the house at a swift pace. 
"'That was well done,' panted Bella, slackening in the next street, and subsiding into a walk. "'If I had left myself any breath to cry with, I should have cried again. Now, poor dear darling little Pa, you are going to see your lovely woman unexpectedly.' End of Book 3, Chapter 15book three chapter sixteen of our mutual friend this librivox recording is in the public domain recorded by mill nicholson our mutual friend by charles dickens book three a long lane chapter sixteen the feast of the three hobgoblins the city looked unpromising enough as bella made her way along its gritty streets most of its money-mills were slackening sail, or had left off grinding for the day. The master-millers had already departed, and the journeymen were departing. There was a jaded aspect on the business-lanes and courts, and the very pavements had a weary appearance, confused by the tread of a million feet. There must be hours of night to temper down the day's distraction of so feverish a place. As yet the worry of the newly stopped whirling and grinding on the part of the money-mills seemed to linger in the air, and the quiet was more like the prostration of a spent giant than the repose of one who was renewing his strength. If Bella thought, as she glanced at the mighty bank, how agreeable it would be to have an hour's gardening there, with a bright copper shovel, among the money, still she was not in an avaricious vein much improved in that respect, and with certain half-formed images, which had little gold in their composition, dancing before her bright eyes, she arrived in the drug-flavoured region of Mincing Lane, with the sensation of having just opened a drawer in a chemist's shop. The counting-house of Chicksey, Veneering, and Stobbles was pointed out by an elderly female, accustomed to the care of offices, who dropped upon Bella out of a public-house, wiping her mouth, and accounted for its humidity on natural principles well known to the physical sciences, by explaining that she had looked in at the door to see what o'clock it was. The counting-house was a wall-eyed ground-floor by a dark gateway, and Bella was considering, as she approached it, could there be any precedent in the city for her going in, and asking for our Wilfer, when whom should she see, sitting at one of the windows with the plate-glass sash raised, but R. Wilfer himself, preparing to take a slight refection. On approaching nearer, Bella discerned that the refection had the appearance of a small cottage loaf and a penneth of milk. Simultaneously, with this discovery on her part, her father discovered her, and invoked the echoes of Mincing Lane to exclaim, "'My gracious me!' He then came cherubically flying out without a hat, and embraced her, and handed her in. "'For it's after hours, and I am all alone, my dear,' he explained, "'and am having, as I sometimes do when they are all gone, a quiet tea.' Looking round the office, as if her father were a captive, and this his cell, Bella hugged him and choked him to her heart's content. "'I never was so surprised, my dear.' said her father. I couldn't believe my eyes. Upon my life, I thought they had taken to lying. 
the idea of your coming down the lane yourself. Why didn't you send the footman down the lane, my dear?' "'I have brought no footman with me, Pa.' "'Oh, indeed. But you have brought the elegant turnout, my love?' "'No, Pa. You never can have walked, my dear?' "'Yes, I have, Pa.' He looked so very much astonished that Bella could not make up her mind to break it to him just yet. "'The consequence is, Pa, that your lovely woman feels a little faint, and would very much like to share your tea.' The cottage loaf and the penneth of milk had been set forth on a sheet of paper on the window-seat. The cherubic pocket-knife, with the first bit of the loaf still on its point, lay beside them where it had been hastily thrown down. Bella took the bit off, and put it in her mouth. "'My dear child,' said her father, "'the idea of your partaking of such lowly fare. But at least you must have your own loaf and your own penneth. Uh, one moment, my dear. The dairy is just over the way, and round the corner.' Regardless of Bella's dissuasions, he ran out, and quickly returned with the new supply. "'My dear child,' he said, as he spread it on another piece of paper before her, the idea of a splendid—and then looked at her figure and stopped short. "'What's the matter, Pa?' "'Of a, a splendid female,' he resumed more slowly, "'putting up with such accommodation as the present. Is that a new dress you have on, my dear?' "'No, Pa, an old one. Don't you remember it?' "'Why, I thought I remembered it, my dear.' "'You should, for you bought it, Pa.' "'Yes, I thought I bought it, my dear,' said the cherub, giving himself a little shake, as if to rouse his faculties. "'And have you grown so fickle that you don't like your own taste, Pa, dear?' "'Well, my love,' he returned, swallowing a bit of the cottage loaf with considerable effort, for it seemed to stick by the way. I should have thought it was hardly sufficiently splendid for existing circumstances. "'And so, Pa,' said Bella, moving coaxingly to his side, instead of remaining opposite, "'you sometimes have a quiet tear here all alone. I am not in the tea's way if I draw my arm over your shoulder like this, Pa.' "'Yes, my dear, and uh, no, my dear.' "'Yes, to the first question, and certainly not to the second. "'Respecting the quiet tea, my dear, "'why, you see, the occupations of the day are sometimes a little wearing, "'and if there's nothing interposed between the day and your mother, "'why, she is sometimes a little wearing, too.' "'I know, Pa.' "'Yes, my dear, so sometimes I put a quiet tea at the window here, with a little quiet contemplation of the lane, which comes soothing between the day and domestic—' uh, "'Bliss,' suggested Bella, sorrowfully, "'and domestic bliss,' said her father, quite contented to accept the phrase. Bella kissed him. "'And it is in this dark— dingy place of captivity, poor dear, that you pass all the hours of your life when you are not at home. Not at home, or not on the road there, or on the road here, my love. Yes, 
"'You see that little desk in the corner?' "'In the dark corner, furthest both from the light and from the fireplace, the shabbiest desk of all the desks.' "'Now, does it really strike you in that point of view, my dear?' said her father, surveying it artistically with his head on one side. "'That's mine. That's called Rumpty's Perch.' "'Whose perch?' asked Bella, with great indignation. "'Rumpty's. You see, being rather high and up two steps, they call it a perch, and they call me Rumpty.' "'How dare they!' exclaimed Bella. "'They're playful, Bella, my dear, they're playful. They're more or less younger than I am, and they're playful. What does it matter? It might be surly, or sulky, or fifty disagreeable things that I sh really shouldn't like to be considered. But Rumpty, law, why not Rumpty?' To inflict a heavy disappointment on this sweet nature, which had been, through all her caprices, the object of her recognition, love, and admiration from infancy, Bella felt to be the hardest task of her hard day. I should have done better, she thought, to tell him at first. I should have done better to tell him just now, when he had some slight misgiving. He is quite happy again, and I shall make him wretched. He was falling back on his loaf and milk, with the pleasantest composure, and Bella stealing her arm a little closer about him, and at the same time sticking up his hair with an irresistible propensity to play with him, founded on the habit of her whole life, had prepared herself to say, "'Pa, dear, don't be cast down, but I must tell you something disagreeable,' when he interrupted her in an unlooked-for manner. "'My gracious me!' he exclaimed, invoking the mincing lane echoes as before. "'This is very extraordinary.' "'What is, Pa?' "'Why, here's Mr. Rokesmith now.' "'No, no, Pa, no!' cried Bella, greatly flurried. "'Surely not!' "'Yes, there is. Look here.' Sooth to say, Mr. Rokesmith not only passed the window, but came into the counting-house and not only came into the counting-house but finding himself alone there with bella and her father rushed at bella and caught her in his arms with the rapturous words my dear dear girl my gallant generous disinterested courageous noble girl and not only that even which one might have thought astonishment enough for one dose but bella after hanging her head for a moment lifted it up and laid it on his breast as if that were her head's chosen and lasting resting-place. "'I knew you would come to him, and I followed you,' said Rokesmith. "'My love, my life, you are mine,' to which Bella responded, "'Yes, I am yours, if you think me worth taking,' and after that seemed to shrink to next to nothing in the clasp of his arms, partly because it was such a strong one on his part, and partly because there was such a yielding to it on hers. The cherub, whose hair would have done for itself under the influence of this amazing spectacle what Bella had just now done for it, staggered back into the window-seat from which he had risen, and surveyed the pair with his eyes dilated to their utmost. "'But we must think of dear Pa,' said Bella. "'I haven't told dear Pa. Let us speak to Pa.' Upon which they turned to do so. "'I wish first, my dear,' 
remarked the cherub faintly, that you'd have the kindness to sprinkle me with a little milk, for I feel as if I was going. In fact, the good little fellow had become alarmingly limp, and his senses seemed to be rapidly escaping from the knees upward. Bella sprinkled him with kisses instead of milk, but gave him a little of that article to drink, and he gradually revived under her caressing care. "'We'll break it to you gently, dearest Pa,' said Bella. "'My dear,' returned the cherub, looking at them both, "'you broke so much in the first gush, if I may so express myself, that I think I am equal to a good large breakage now.' "'Mr. Wilfer,' said John Rokesmith, excitedly and joyfully. "'Bella takes me, though I have no fortune, even no present occupation, nothing but what I can get in the life before us. Bella takes me.' "'Yes, I should rather have inferred, my dear sir,' returned the cherub feebly, "'that Bella took you from what I have within these few minutes remarked.' "'You don't know, Pa,' said Bella, "'how ill I have used him.' "'You don't know, sir,' said Rokesmith, "'what a heart she has.' "'You don't know, Pa,' said Bella, "'what a shocking creature I was growing "'when he saved me from myself.' "'You don't know, sir,' said Rokesmith, "'what a sacrifice she has made for me.' "'My dear Bella,' replied the cherub, "'still pathetically scared, "'and my dear John Rokesmith, "'if you will allow me so to call you,' "'Yes, do, Pa, do,' urged Bella. "'I allow you, and my will is his law, isn't it, dear John Rokesmith?' There was an engaging shyness in Bella, coupled with an engaging tenderness of love and confidence and pride, in thus first calling him by name, which made it quite excusable in John Rokesmith to do what he did. What he did was, once more, to give her the appearance of vanishing as aforesaid. "'I think, my dears,' observed the cherub, "'that if you could make it convenient to sit one on one side of me and the other on the other, we should get on rather more consecutively, and make things rather plainer. John Rokesmith mentioned a while ago that he had no present occupation.' "'None,' said Rokesmith. "'No, Pa, none,' said Bella. "'From which I argue,' proceeded the cherub, that he has left Mr. Boffin? Yes, Pa, and so— Stop a bit, my dear, I wish to lead up to it by degrees. And that Mr. Boffin has not treated him well. Has treated him most shamefully, dear Pa, cried Bella, with a flashing face. Of which— pursued the cherub, enjoining patience with his hand, a certain mercenary young person, distantly related to myself, could not approve. Am I leading up to it right?' "'Could not approve, sweet pa,' said Bella, with a tearful laugh and a joyful kiss. "'Upon which,' pursued the cherub, "'the certain mercenary young person, distantly related to myself, having previously observed and mentioned to myself that prosperity was spoiling Mr. Boffin, felt that she must not sell her sense of what was right and what was wrong, and what was true and what was false and what was just and what was unjust, for any price that could be paid to her by any one alive. Am I leading up to it right?' 
With another tearful laugh, Bella joyfully kissed him again. "'And therefore, and therefore,' the cherub went on in a glowing voice, as Bella's hand stole gradually up his waistcoat to his neck, "'this mercenary young person, distantly related to myself, refused the price, took off the splendid fashions that were part of it, put on the comparatively poor dress that I had last given her, and trusting to my supporting her in what was right, came straight to me. Have I led up to it?' Bella's hand was round his neck by this time, and her face was on it. "'The mercenary young person, distantly related to myself,' said her good father, "'did well. The mercenary young person, distantly related to myself, did not trust to me in vain. I admire this mercenary young person, distantly related to myself, more in this dress than if she had come to me in china silk. Cashmere shawls and Golconda diamonds. I love this young person dearly. I say to the man of this young person's heart, out of my heart and with all of it, my blessing on this engagement betwixt you. And she brings you a good fortune when she brings you the poverty she has accepted for your sake and the honest truths. The staunch little man's voice failed him as he gave John Rokesmith his hand and he was silent, bending his face low over his daughter. But, not for long, he soon looked up, saying in a sprightly tone, "'And now, my dear child, if you think you can entertain John Rooksmith for a minute and a half, I'll run over to the dairy and fetch him a cottage loaf and a drink of milk, that we may all have tea together.' It was, as Bella gaily said, like the supper provided for the three nursery hobgoblins at their house in the forest, without their thunderous low growlings of the alarming discovery. Somebody's been drinking my milk. It was a delicious repast, by far the most delicious that Bella, or John Rokesmith, or even R. Wilfer, had ever made. The uncongenial oddity of its surroundings, with the two brass knobs of the iron safe of Chicksy veneering and stobbles, staring from a corner like the eyes of some dull dragon, only made it the more delightful. "'To think,' said the cherub, looking round the office with unspeakable enjoyment, "'that anything of a tender nature should come off here is what tickles me. To think that ever I should have seen my Bella folded in the arms of her future husband here!' you know. It was not until the cottage loaves and the milk had for some time disappeared, and the foreshadowings of night were creeping over Mincing Lane, that the cherub by degrees became a little nervous, and said to Bella, as he cleared his throat, <coughs> "'Have you thought at all about your mother, my dear?' "'Yes, Pa.' "'And your sister Lavvy, for instance, my dear?' "'Yes, Pa.' "'I think we had better not enter into particulars at home. "'I think it will be quite enough to say "'that I had a difference with Mr. Boffin "'and have left for good.' "'John Rokesmith, being acquainted with your ma, my love,' "'said her father, after some slight hesitation, "'I need have no delicacy in hinting before him "'that you may perhaps find your ma a little wearing. "'A little patient, pa?' said Bella, with a tuneful laugh, the tunefuller for being so loving in its tone. "'Well, we'll say, strictly in confidence among ourselves, 
wearing. We won't qualify it, the cherub stoutly admitted, and your sister's temper is wearing. I don't mind, Pa. And you must prepare yourself, you know, my precious, said her father, with much gentleness, for our looking very poor and meagre at home, and being at the best but very uncomfortable after Mr. Boffin's house. I don't mind, Pa. I could bear much harder trials for John. The closing words were not so softly and blushingly said, but that John heard them, and showed that he heard them by again assisting Bella to another of those mysterious disappearances. "'Well,' said the cherub gaily, and not expressing disapproval, "'when you—when you come back from retirement, my love, and reappear on the surface, I think it will be time to lock up and go.' If the counting-house of Chicksey, Veneering, and Stobbles had ever been shut up by three happier people, glad as most people were to shut it up, they must have been superlatively happy indeed. But first Bella mounted upon Rumpty's perch, and said, "'Show me what you do here all day long, dear Pa. Do you write like this?' Laying her round cheek upon her plump left arm, and losing sight of her pen and waves of hair, in a highly unbusinesslike manner, though John Rokesmith seemed to like it. So the three hobgoblins, having effaced all traces of their feast, and swept up the crumbs, came out of Mincing Lane to walk to Holloway. And if two of the hobgoblins didn't wish the distance twice as long as it was, the third hobgoblin was much mistaken. Indeed, that modest spirit deemed himself so much in the way of their deep enjoyment of the journey, that he apologetically remarked, "'I think, my dears, I'll take the lead on the other side of the road, and seem not to belong to you.' Which he did, cherubically strewing the path with smiles, in the absence of flowers. It was almost ten o'clock when they stopped within view of Wilfer Castle, and then, the spot being quiet and deserted, Bella began a series of disappearances which threatened to last all night. "'I think, John,' the cherub hinted at last, "'that if you can spare me the young person distantly related to myself, I'll take her in.' "'I can't spare her,' answered John. "'But I must lend her to you.' "'My darling!' A word of magic which caused Bella instantly to disappear again. "'Now, dearest Pa,' said Bella, when she became visible, "'put your hand in mine, and we'll run home as fast as ever we can run, and get it over. Now, Pa, once—' "'My dear,' the cherub faltered, with something of a craven air, "'I was going to observe that if your mother—' "'You mustn't hang back, sir, to gain time,' cried Bella, putting out her right foot. "'Do you see that, sir?' "'That's the mark. Come up to the mark, sir. Once, twice, three times, and away, Pa!' Off she skimmed, bearing the cherub along, nor ever stopped, nor suffered him to stop, until she had pulled at the bell. "'Now, dear Pa,' said Bella, taking him by both ears, as if he were a pitcher, and conveying his face to her rosy lips, "'we are in for it.' Miss Lavvy came out to open the gate, waited on by that attentive cavalier and friend of the family, Mr. George Sampson. "'Why, it's never Bella!' exclaimed Miss Lavvy, starting back at the sight, and then bawled, "'Ma! Here's Bella!' This produced, before they could get into the house, Mrs. Wilfer, 
who, standing in the portal, received them with ghostly gloom and all her other appliances of ceremony. "'My child is welcome, though unlooked for,' said she, at the time presenting her cheek, as if it were a cool slate for visitors to enrol themselves upon. "'You, too, R.W., are welcome, though late. Does the male domestic of Mrs. Boffin hear me there?' This deep-toned inquiry was cast forth into the night, for response from the menial in question. "'There is no one waiting, my dear,' said Bella. "'There is no one waiting?' repeated Mrs. Wilfer, in majestic accents. "'No, my dear.' A dignified shiver pervaded Mrs. Wilfer's shoulders and gloves, as who should say, an enigma, and then she marched at the head of the procession to the family keeping-room, where she observed, "'Unless R. W.' who started on being solemnly turned upon, "'You have taken the precaution of making some addition to our frugal supper on your way home. It will prove but a distasteful one to Bella. Cold neck of mutton and a lettuce can ill compete with the luxuries of Mr. Boffin's board.' "'Pray don't talk like that, my dear,' said Bella. "'Mr. Boffin's board is nothing to me.' But here Miss Lavinia, who had been intently eyeing Bella's bonnet, struck in with— "'Why, Bella!' "'Yes, lovey, I know.' The irrepressible lowered her eyes to Bella's dress, and stooped to look at it, exclaiming again, "'Why, Bella!' "'Yes, lovey, I know what I have got on. I was going to tell Ma when you interrupted. I have left Mr. Boffin's house for good, Ma, and I have come home again.' Mrs. Wilfer spake no word but, having glared at her offspring for a minute or two in an awful silence, retired into her corner of state backward, and sat down, like a frozen article on sale in a Russian market. "'In short, dear Ma,' said Bella, taking off the depreciated bonnet, and shaking out her hair, "'I have had a very serious difference with Mr. Boffin, on the subject of his treatment of a member of his household, and it's a final difference, and there's an end of all.' "'And I am bound to tell you, my dear,' added R. W., submissively, "'that Bella has acted in a truly brave spirit, and with a truly right feeling, and therefore I hope, my dear, you not allow yourself to be greatly disappointed.' "'George,' said Miss Lavvy, in a sepulchral warning voice, founded on her mother's, "'George Sampson, speak. What did I tell you about those boffins?' Mr. Sampson, perceiving his frail bark to be labouring among shoals and breakers, thought it safest not to refer back to any particular thing that he had been told, lest he should refer back to the wrong thing. With admirable seamanship he got his bark into deep water by murmuring, "'Yes, indeed.' "'Yes, I tell George Sampson, as George Sampson tells you.' said Miss Lavvy, and those hateful boffins would pick a quarrel with Bella as soon as her novelty had worn off. Have they done it, or have they not? Was I right, or was I wrong? And what do you say to us, Bella, of your boffins now?' "'Lavvy and Ma,' said Bella, "'I say of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin what I always have said, and I always shall say of them what I always have said. But nothing will induce me to quarrel with any one to-night.' "'I hope you're not sorry to see me, Ma, dear,' kissing her. "'And I hope you're not sorry to see me, Lavvy,' kissing her, too. "'And as I notice the lettuce Ma mentioned on the table, I'll make the salad.' 
Bella playfully setting herself about the task, Mrs. Wilfer's impressive countenance followed her with glaring eyes, presenting a combination of the once popular sign of the Saracen's head with a piece of Dutch clockwork, and suggesting to an imaginative mind that from the composition of the salad her daughter might prudently omit the vinegar. But no word issued from the majestic matron's lips, and this was more terrific to her husband, as perhaps she knew, than any flow of eloquence with which she could have edified the company. "'Now, my dear,' said Bella, in due course, "'the salad's ready, and it's past supper-time.' Mrs. Wilfer rose, but remained speechless. "'George,' said Miss Lavinia, in her voice of warning, "'Ma's chair!' Mr. Sampson flew to the excellent lady's back, and followed her up close chair in hand, as she stalked to the banquet. Arrived at the table, she took her rigid seat, after favouring Mr. Sampson with a glare for himself, which caused the young gentleman to retire to his place in much confusion. The cherub, not presuming to address so tremendous an object, transacted her supper through the agency of a third person, as, "'Mutton to your ma, Bella, my dear,' and, "'Lavvy, I dare say your ma would take some lettuce if you were to put it on her plate.' Mrs. Wilfer's manner of receiving those viands was marked by petrified absence of mind, in which state, likewise, she partook of them, occasionally laying down her knife and fork, as saying within her own spirit, "'What is this I am doing?' and glaring at one or other of the party, as if in indignant search of information. A magnetic result of such glaring was, that the person glared at could not by any means successfully pretend to be ignorant of the fact, so that a bystander, without beholding Mrs. Wilfer at all, must have known at whom she was glaring, by seeing her refracted from the countenance of the beglared one. Miss Lavinia was extremely affable to Mr. Sampson on this special occasion, and took the opportunity of informing her sister why. "'It was not worth troubling you about, Bella, when you were in a sphere so far removed from your family, as to make it a matter in which you could be expected to take very little interest.' said Lavinia, with a toss of her chin. "'But George Sampson is paying his addresses to me.' Bella was glad to hear it. Mr. Sampson became thoughtfully red, and felt called upon to encircle Miss Lavinia's waist with his arm. But, encountering a large pin in the young lady's belt, scarified a finger, uttered a sharp exclamation, and attracted the lightning of Mrs. Wilfer's glare. "'George is getting on very well.' said Miss Lavinia, which might not have been supposed at the moment. "'And I dare say we shall be married, one of these days. I didn't care to mention it when you were with your boff—here Miss Lavinia checked herself in a bounce, and added more placidly—'when you were with Mr. and Mrs. Boffin. But now I think it's sisterly to name the circumstance.' "'Thank you, Lavvy, dear. I congratulate you.' "'Thank you, Bella. The truth is, George and I—' did discuss whether I should tell you, but I said to George that you wouldn't be much interested in so paltry an affair, and that it was far more likely you would rather detach yourself from us altogether than have him added to the rest of us. "'That was a mistake, dear Lavvy,' said Bella. "'It turns out to be,' replied Miss Lavinia. "'But circumstances have changed, you know, my dear. George is in a new situation.' and his prospects are very good indeed. I shouldn't have had the courage to tell you so yesterday, when you would have thought his prospects poor and not worth notice, but I feel quite bold to-night.' "'When did you begin to feel timid, Lavvy?' 
inquired Bella with a smile. "'I didn't say that I ever felt timid, Bella,' replied the irrepressible. "'But perhaps I might have said, if I had not been restrained by delicacy towards a sister's feelings, that I have for some time felt independent.' too independent, my dear, to subject myself to have my intended match—you'll prick yourself again, George—looked down upon. It is not that I could have blamed you for looking down upon it when you were looking up to a rich and great match, Bella. It is only that I was independent." Whether the irrepressible felt slighted by Bella's declaration that she would not quarrel, or whether her spitefulness was evoked by Bella's return to the sphere of Mr. George Sampson's courtship, or whether it was a necessary fillip to her spirits that she should come into collision with somebody on the present occasion, anyhow she made a dash at her stately parent now with the greatest impetuosity. "'Ma, pray don't sit staring at me in that intensely aggravating manner. If you see a black on my nose, tell me so, if you don't leave me alone.' "'Do you address me in those words?' said Mrs. Wilfer. "'Do you presume?' talk about presuming, Ma, for goodness' sake. A girl who is old enough to be engaged is quite old enough to object to be stared at as if she was a clock." "'Audacious one!' said Mrs. Wilfer. "'Your grandmamma, if so addressed by one of her daughters at any age, would have insisted on her retiring to a dark apartment.' "'My grandmamma," returned Lavvy, folding her arms and leaning back in her chair, "'wouldn't have sat staring people out of countenance, I think.' "'She would,' said Mrs. Wilfer. "'Then it's a pity she didn't know better,' said Lavvy. "'And if my grandmamma wasn't in her dotage when she took to insisting on people's retiring to dark apartments, she ought to have been. A pretty exhibition my grandmamma must have made of herself. I wonder whether she ever insisted on people's retiring into the ball of St. Paul's, and if she did, how she got them there.' "'Silence!' proclaimed Mrs. Wilfer. "'I command silence!' "'I have not the slightest intention of being silent, Ma,' returned Lavinia coolly, "'but quite the contrary. I am not going to be eyed as if I had come from the boffins and sit silent under it. I am not going to have George Sampson eyed as if he had come from the boffins and sit silent under it. If Pa thinks proper to be eyed as if he had come from the boffins also, well and good. I don't choose to, and I won't.' Lavinia's engineering, having made this crooked opening at Bella, Mrs. Wilfer strode into it. "'You rebellious girl! You mutinous child! Tell me this, Lavinia. If in violation of your mother's sentiments you had condescended to allow yourself to be patronised by the boffins, and if you had come from those halls of slavery—' "'That's mere nonsense, Ma,' said Lavinia. "'How?' exclaimed Mrs. Wilfer, with sublime severity. "'Halls of slavery, Ma! It's mere stuff and nonsense,' returned the unmoved irrepressible. "'I say, presumptuous child, if you had come from the neighbourhood of Portland Place, bending under the yoke of patronage and attended by its domestics in glittering garb to visit me, do you think my deep-seated feelings could have been expressed in looks?' "'All I think about it is,' returned Lavinia, "'that I should wish them expressed to the right person.' "'And if,' 
pursued her mother, if making light of my warnings that the face of Mrs. Boffin alone was a face teeming with evil, you had clung to Mrs. Boffin instead of to me, and had, after all, come home rejected by Mrs. Boffin, trampled underfoot by Mrs. Boffin, and cast out by Mrs. Boffin, do you think my feelings could have been expressed in looks?' Lavinia was about replying to her honoured parent that she might as well have dispensed with her looks altogether then, when Bella rose and said, "'Good-night, dear Ma. I have had a tiring day, and I'll go to bed.' This broke up the agreeable party. Mr. George Sampson shortly afterwards took his leave, accompanied by Miss Lavinia, with a candle as far as the hall, and without a candle as far as the garden gate. Mrs. Wilfer, washing her hands of the boffins, went to bed after the manner of Lady Macbeth, and R. W. was left alone among the dilapidations of the supper-table in a melancholy attitude. But a light footstep roused him from his meditations, and it was Bella's. Her pretty hair was hanging all about her, and she had tripped down softly, brush in hand, and barefoot, to say good-night to him. "'My dear, you most unquestionably are a lovely woman,' said the cherub, taking up a tress in his hand. "'Look here, sir,' said Bella. "'When your lovely woman marries, you shall have that piece, if you like, and she'll make you a chain of it. Would you prize that remembrance of the dear creature?' "'Yes, my precious.' "'Then you shall have it, if you're good, sir. I am very, very sorry, dearest Pa, to have brought home all this trouble.' "'My pet,' returned her father, in the simplest good faith, don't make yourself uneasy about that. It really is not worth mentioning, because things at home would have taken pretty much the same turn anyway. If your mother and sister don't find one subject to get at times a little wearing on, they find another. We're never out of a wearing subject, my dear, I assure you. I'm afraid you find your old room with Lavvy dreadfully inconvenient, Bella. No, I don't, Pa. I don't mind. Why don't I mind, do you think, Pa?" "'Well, my child, you used to complain of it when it wasn't such a contrast as it must be now. Upon my word, I can only answer, because you are so much improved." "'No, Pa, because I am so thankful and so happy.' Here she choked him, until her long hair made him sneeze, and then she laughed until she made him laugh, and then she choked him again that they might not be overheard. "'Listen, sir,' said Bella, "'your lovely woman was told her fortune to-night on her way home. It won't be a large fortune, because if the lovely woman's intended gets a certain appointment that he hopes to get soon, she will marry on a hundred and fifty pounds a year. But that's at first, and even if it should never be more, the lovely woman will make it quite enough.' But that's not all, sir. In the fortune there's a certain fair man—a little man, the fortune-teller said—who, it seems, will always find himself near the lovely woman, and will always have kept, expressly for him, such a peaceful corner in the lovely woman's little house as never was. Tell me the name of that man, sir." "'Is he a knave in the pack of cards?' inquired the cherub, with a twinkle in his eyes. "'Yes!' cried Bella, in high glee, choking him again. "'He's the knave of Wilfers. Dear Pa, 
the lovely woman means to look forward to this fortune that has been told for her, so delightfully, and to cause it to make her a much better lovely woman than she ever has been yet. What the little fair man is expected to do, sir, is to look forward to it also, by saying to himself, when he is in danger of being over-worried, I see land at last. I see land at last, repeated her father. There's a dear knave of Wilfer's, exclaimed Bella, then putting out her small white bare foot. That's the mark, sir. Come to the mark. Put your boot against it. We keep to it together, mind. Now, sir, you may kiss the lovely woman before she runs away, so thankful and so happy. Oh, yes, fair little man, so thankful and so happy. End of Book Three, Chapter Sixteen. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.